Welcome. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our global webcast for consciousness and culture. I am uh, very excited uh, to have with me here Anur Lada. Anur, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Thomas. Anur, if, if I may introduce you to our audience, uh, your work focuses on the intersection of political organi organizing, systems thinking, structural change, and narrative work. You were the co-founder and executive director of The Rules, also the co-founder of Tierra Valiente, an alternative community and healing center in the jungle of Northern Costa Rica. And you're also board member of the Culture Hack Labs and the Emergence Network. I invited you for this show because I, I really see you as one of the voices who has Uh, his own vision about the transition time uh, that we are in and also about the connection between inner spiritual work and uh, the political work that we need. And I just saw recently, in fact, a couple of days ago, a video of yours where you talked about four practices that uh, in that context that you talked to peace workers need. And I was impressed by what you picked as practices. And the first practice that you chose there was that we need to study our culture. And I would like to just go into this, what you mean and why you think so that if we want to work for, let's say, in and out of change, for also transitioning our culture and our crisis that we are in, Why do you think one of the main practices that we have to develop is to study our culture? Yeah, the, the context of that, uh, the question um, that was, was sent to me was what do global peace workers um, need to know or, and what would be some universal practices? And, and the four were starting with being a good student of the culture. And the second was then disidentifying from that dominant culture. And the third was transcension of subject object duality. And then the fourth was the, the practice of animism, mm -hmm. right? And I, I, I lay that out to say, um, they're not necessarily sequential. Um, they're, they're more discursive and, and iterative, but the, the starting place um, is the, the, the dominant operating system with which, in which we are embedded. And, so, you know, there's the old Marshall McLuhan line. He says, um, I don't know who discovered water, but I can tell you it wasn't a fish. And there, there is a, this, this operating system is the sort of default logic. It's the background condition for everything we do. And most of us are not necessarily versed on how the dominant system is working. You know, of course we have, we interact with it daily and, Uh, many of us have political critiques of it, but as a, as a sort of ongoing uh, praxis, you know, and, and applied uh, both sort of practical and theoretical and contemplative based practice, um, we're, we're, we're not sort of taught that in, in, in our culture. Um, and, and why would we be, right? Because uh, cultures themselves are, are self-preserving. That's the very nature of them. And so maybe the starting place to say, well, what, what is our dominant culture? Well, from a political economic perspective, it can be 
defined as, as neoliberalism. And especially amongst the spiritual community, you know, this is a word that I think people are not that familiar with. And, um, and uh, sorry for the background noise. I'm, I'm, I'm in Mexico City right now and uh, in the middle of the urban jungle. Um, but, but when we say a word like neoliberalism, what often comes up is people will say things like, well, uh, I'm not ideological or this is political. And, and, and it's much more than that, right? Because neoliberal uh, political philosophy and economic philosophy is really the, the sort of core root of the dominant culture. And it's more like a theology and it, it pervades every aspect of our lives. And what neoliberalism is, is essentially the culmination of proto-capitalism, you know, 5,000 years ago when we started city-states and stopped uh, uh, farming and being in the trust of the, the abundance of a hunting-gathering lifestyle and became sedentary and hierarchical and patriarchal. And, and the logical outcome of those decisions 5,000 years ago in Babylon and Ur and the original city-states has sort of led to this, to this moment. And Although neoliberalism itself really only started in the 1940s, um, it, it's now sort of been supercharged, right? And what its what its tenets are uh, are essentially the 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 belief that uh, wealth is a proxy for goodness. So if you have more money, you're somehow in, inherently a better human being, and if you're poor, you're somehow a failure. Um, it's it's uh, inherently ahistorical, so it doesn't take into account at all uh, what has happened to get us to this moment and why some people have uh, advantages over others. Um, it's based on the, the the belief that there's a a core uh, a class uh, of job creators, you know, essentially one percenters, and that uh, if we support their extravagant lifestyles and their abundance, that wealth will somehow trickle down to the rest of us. So we subsidize corporations and, you know, rich people don't pay tax and uh, all of that. Um, it's, it's inherently patriarchal because men's work is valued more than uh, um, women's work and, and uh, you know, abstract uh, cognitive tasks like, you know, if you're a high velocity trader, uh, you'll be deeply rewarded by the system. And if uh, you're a care worker uh, or a social worker or an educator or a parent, your, your, your labor is not valued uh, in, in, in this existing system. And, and it's also based on a racialized hierarchy because Western Europeans had a 500-year head start on, on capital um, through guns, germs, and steel initially, and then through colonization imperialism, slavery, genocide, etc. And we used to have many ways to acquire goods and services, right? Hunting and gathering and bartering and gifting and fishing. And, and now we have one way, which is debt-based currency, largely US-backed fiat currency. And so there's a monopoly on, on how one can access these things. And there's a historical trajectory of how we got to this place. And yet that's not acknowledged at all. And so that, that's the kind of moment we're in from a, from a political economic perspective. Um, and, and the moral implications of that are all around us, right? There's no uh, valuing of, of 
diversity of uh, ecosystems, of life, of relationships. It's a culture that commodifies, that transactionalizes, that is based on usury, on destruction of the natural world, etc. And so that's the oxygen in which we're breathing. And so if we're not in contemplation of that, and we're not really understanding how the system works and what it's doing to us, because it is a, you know, it's mediating every aspect of our lives, from where we live, to what work we're doing, to what our... Uh, possibilities are for even the the you know the movement of our own bodies so it is a it's a there's a sort of biopolitical constraint on us which is this neoliberal oxygen and so that for me is a critical starting place in 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 the pra- the the praxis of of trying to transform the world yeah i find it always interesting when you talk to people uh, about change uh Uh, quite often uh, you come to the point uh, where we have to be more conscious. And uh, depending on who you're talking to, uh, to be more conscious means something very different. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are people who are just in different forms of inner trans- transformation and consciousness is, let's say, very consciousness oriented. And maybe meditation maybe yoga, maybe tantra, maybe, maybe other thing, but consciousness means something uh, very um, uh, inner. Mm-hmm. When you talk about uh, becoming more conscious to political people, it, become, it means becoming more conscious about uh, how society works, how history works, where we come from, what happened in the last 5,000 years to, to, to understand really the the dynamics of our societies also from this outer uh, perspective. And I think uh, to really uh, see how this uh, becoming more conscious means both, how you have to kind of learn how you tick, how we, how our inner world uh, uh, is constituted and see this also from the outer world is something that we more and more kind of understand first uh, that we have to see together and second that it's not separate anyway that one is mirroring each other and the idea that that these are two different things to some degree that's that's that's, it's true but in fact we are uh, looking into a cosmology that has its inner manifestations and its outer manifestations and it seems to be important to be students of that. And that's how I understood it when I heard, uh, when you were saying we, we have to start to be students of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. And, and you're right, the, the, the word consciousness uh, or, you know, wokeness or, uh, you know, even evolution, right? There's, there's such loaded words and, um, and there's also so ambiguous. And so in political communities, it's, more deeply understanding the political system and in spiritual communities it's more deeply understanding the inner aspects of self but you know as i said in in uh, trying to explain what what neoliberalism is what this operating system is is that it is not outside of us right it is of course mediating every aspect of our lives and affecting us directly but it is also uh, our mental structures that are um perpetuating it right that are are uh, allowing it to exist right and you know like steve biko the the uh, south african anti-apartheid activist he he once said the most potent weapon of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed mm-hmm. and so 
although we we are all in one level being oppressed by the existing system uh, you know even the one percent right and if we look at you know, depression levels and uh, anxiety levels and the connection to nature and you know quality of life in 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 that sense in a psycho-spiritual sense they're, they're they are also impoverished and and yet our very agency in uh, our day-to-day interaction perpetuates the existing system. And so it seems to me that we can't have a discussion of what it means to be conscious outside of both uh, an inner and outer uh, non-dual perspective. And I think this is the sort of moment where we're starting to, to at least begin to understand that we are being initiated into not only non-dualistic thought, but into non-dualistic being. We're starting to understand the fractal nature of reality and how these external systems are on a, yes, a material sense being perpetuated by every choice we make from, you know, our food to our waste and water and, you know, the, the, the big sort of societal choices that in some ways have been made for us, but also, uh, you know, on a quantum level and on a spiritual level, on a, uh, a kind of non-local level, very much uh, that reality is being affected at, by, by our very thought structures, by our, our very practices, by our ontologies, Right? Our understanding of beingness, our worldviews, um, our epistemologies, our understanding of knowledge. So we are both making the world and being made by the world simultaneously. I mean, we're living in an interesting time right now because uh, more than even five years ago, I think uh, everybody, nearly everybody would agree that we are in a deep crisis of our civilization. And uh, the, this crisis of, of civilization has all uh, uh, different layers. Uh, you can talk uh, about the climate crisis. You can talk about uh, the global social crisis. You, you can talk about the COVID, the COVID crisis. Uh, and you can continue with that. There is something where it seems um, that um, more than at least ever in my lifetime, it seems to be obvious that we cannot continue as we did. Some, so, something cannot continue here. And uh, at the same time, uh, there is no kind of uh, new paradigm naturally em em emerging in this. And this is always an interesting situation because this allows us to deeply um, reckon with our situation. And maybe this is also at a time where... Uh, we have to or, uh, need to look uh, very closely what brought us into this, where we are right now, and uh, how can we disidentify with this? Or is it what, what do we need to disidentify from? Uh, do you see the same moment, or how do you see this? Yeah, you know, there's this, this um, Antonio Gramsci line where he says, the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh -huh. and, and, and this, this is the, the, the moment we're in. It's like, and this is why I start with, with uh, understanding the oxygen of modernity and, and, and neoliberalism. And you know, I think it was George Monbiot wrote um, an article late last year where he said, you know, imagine being in a, in a, uh, a ration line for bread in 
Soviet Russia in, in you know, 1982 or something and not knowing the name of the system that puts you in that line, right? And so I, I, do, I'm, we're, I think we're at a state where we're, we're starting to be aware that this old system is dying, yet most people are, don't really know why. We don't even, you know, for the vast majority of human beings, don't even really understand uh, we don't even know the word neoliberalism yet. The fact that this is the dominant system that has sort of put us in this place. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's sort of now happening. And then that also requires an understanding of the historical uh, precedents that got us to this moment. And, and at this, uh, on top of all of that, what's also happening is people are starting to understand that, uh, you know, COVID is not some kind of externality of the system that will just like get over and fix. You know, this is the logical outcome of late stage capitalism. Like the more we encroach on the natural world, the more zoonotic viruses there are going to be. The more we destroy ecosystems and the ecological web of life, the, uh, the more um, sort of un- uninhabitable the planet will be, right? And every dollar of wealth created is heating up the planet. It doesn't matter if that's in quote unquote uh, social capitalism or conscious capitalism as if such a thing could exist within a system that's hardwired for destruction. And every dollar of wealth created is actively creating inequality and poverty because you know 93 cents or something like that of every dollar ends up in the hands of the top 1%. So all of these things are deeply interconnected to the crisis. And it seems on one level that there is no alternative out, right? But I, and I think that's partly because we are, we are looking for another ism for uh, a, a similar type of operating system, right? Often when you, when you develop a, um, a critique of, of, of the dominant system, people will say, well, there is no alternative. You know, this is the best, worst system we have, to, to paraphrase Churchill. And it seems to me that that line of thinking comes from a lack of awareness uh, and sensitivity to the context in which we find ourselves. Because there is going to, if we continue as we are, for, for example, we, you know, we, we also know that uh, um, when we, we, we talk about these sort of tenets of, of, of the neoliberal system, that uh, it, it, it has this understanding of the, the human nature as selfish and competitive and red and tooth and claw and all of that. And um, it's also rooted in this materialistic worldview and these rigid hierarchies we talked about and, and money is virtue and the individual is the prime unit, but also growth, right, is one of the core tenets. And so 3% growth, you know, which is what the World Bank and economists and others say is what we need and is what every, you know, country aims for to, to just not be in, 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 you know, recession or stagflation or what have you. That requires the doubling of the global economy every 20 years, right? And because basically in a growth-based system, your growth has to exceed your interest rate in order for that money to be valuable, right? It's like the simple economics 101 of it. So you have to grow this pie at, at a rate that's slightly higher than the interest rate so people can actually pay that money back. And so it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme in that sense. And so could you imagine growing the global economy, doubling the global economy in the next 20 years? Like twice as many iPhones and 
Toyota Priuses and short haul flights and uh, Apple computers and uh, et cetera, right? It, it's, it's, it's physically impossible. We've already crossed four of the nine planetary bounds. And so what, what the context is, is, is telling us is that uh, climate change is going to, and ecological collapse are going to force us to live in small autonomous communities, probably disconnected from internet and central energy grids and uh, central power structures and global supply chains. And that, that is coming fast. You know, we, we, we know that, um, for, and not that even carbon is, is the, the, the end all be all of this, but there is a correlation between our material output and consumption and carbon in the atmosphere and temperature of the planet uh, and uh, species destruction and the desalination of the ocean and, uh, you know, all of that. It's, it's all interconnected. So as we continue doing what we're doing, we are basically ensuring that life on this planet uh, will will no longer exist as a result. And so the alternative in, in, in some ways, um, uh, if, if we're being attuned to the context, is to, to start building uh, and creating and, and amalgamating what already exists around s- smaller uh, localized communities and economies that are resilient, that are place-based, that are based on food sovereignty and food justice, um, that that uh, essentially are, are uh, rooted in principles like subsidiarity, where power is distributed to the people who are most affected by the decisions of power. If we start building that, I call it post-capitalist infrastructure, but whatever you want to call it now, we're going to ensure uh, more life on this planet, including human life, survives. And so in that sense, there is an alternative. We just don't want to acknowledge that. And, and by we, I, I mean like the, the, the dominant system because especially in the places where we're comfortable living in you know, our atomized apartments and we have cars and we're beneficiaries of this, ex- this existing system. But um, you know, constraint is a, a, privilege is a constraint. So the more comfortable we are within the existing system, the more difficult it is for us to see that this system inevitably has to end. And we're already in the midst of that transition. And so I, I agree with the analysis, but uh, the addendum I would put to it is it, it feels as if the alternatives don't exist, but actually the alternatives do exist. And they've been lived in parallel um, by indigenous peoples and communities in the global South for, for many, many generations. And not to say that they have the answer or it's, these, it's, it's, it's those old ways or just indigenous ways, but there will be some kind of synthesis of these ways and a shift in our worldview and understanding that those are not just quaint alternatives on the margins. Those are the ideas that hold the highest potential for human and more than human survival. What you're describing right now as I hear you, it's both, it, it holds the, the studying of our culture and the disidentifying with our culture and, uh, and, 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 and our system. If I may come back to uh, this, uh, uh, that practices uh, that you call for peacemakers, mm-hmm. you made there, uh, for me, quite powerful shift in the middle where you, uh, you, you talked Basically, uh, as I understood about what you're talking about right now, 
and then you you moved to a practice of uh, overcoming the subject-object relationship. All of a sudden, we seem to be in a completely different territory. How does this connect? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if, if what we just talked about was the, the first aspect of being a good student. I, I think that the bridge in the middle is important, right? To okay. say that once you understand that system, and it's, it's not that understanding is a final arrival point, but as we said, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a practice. It's an act of contemplation. It's being a student of that for the, you know, the duration of your incarnation. And then the second part of it is disidentifying from that system because that system only has power if we are uh, vested in the approval of that system. And, and this is why I, I don't believe in, in conspiracy theories or this is about a, a couple of bad people. No, the, the system is a complex adaptive evolutionary system. Okay. It's alive uh, and not alive in a, in a natural sense, more in an artificial intelligence sense. You know, the market system is, is, is the greatest Frankenstein we've ever created, right? All, the, all these Silicon Valley people are waiting for the singularity and the singularity already exists and it's late stage capitalism. And so when you program certain values at the top of the system, uh, and and you 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 create certain rules. The system is just generative of those rules. So if you have a debt-based system that is dependent on growth and and is necessitated by growth, well, you're, you're going you're going to liquidate all life, all resources, etc. to to hold that growth. That's what capitalism is. It's capital above all else. The growth and accumulation of capital above all else. That is the prime directive. And so when you understand that, the next act is to disidentify from that. And so, uh, well, you know, the, if the system is a complex adaptive system, it, it's the opposite of a merit system. It, it's not that, you know, the things we're told, you go to the right schools and you uh, work hard and somehow you'll like rise to the top. No, it's like the system finds the people who best serve its logic, right? And its logic is extractive, growth-based, short-termist, uh, rewards, greed, psychopathy, short-termism, life-denying tendencies, etc., and it pulls them to the top. So as soon as you say, "and I, okay, I'm going to spend my time and dedicate myself to understanding the system, not just for the abstract, uh, intellectual, theoretical act of doing that, but to inform my beingness of how I move in the world." that we, we have this sort of awareness that we've incarnated into the Anthropocene, into the Kali Yuga, into this self-terminating logic of, of capitalism, then it's incumbent on us to live our lives in ways that are outside the confines of that system, which requ requires that we break all the forms of identification that push us into that culture, including nationalism, including uh, patriotism, uh, including the status and the money and the creature comforts that we get from being good beneficiaries and recipients and perpetuators of that system. And then that leads to this idea of the transcension of subject-object duality, because without a spiritual practice, that's a very difficult thing to do, right? Most people are highly identified with their egos, with their jobs, with their social status, Right, and which is of course like reflected in things like our social media culture, and um, in, in order to disidentify, 
if we look at indigenous cultures, mystical traditions, etc., one of the, the the core tenets of all of these wisdom traditions has been uh, the practice of transcending subject-object duality. But what um, does it even what does it even mean? What does it mean to transcend? I mean, it sounds great, okay. uh, transcending subject-object. So, so, right. So, so but, uh, here we are talking. Uh, I'm sitting here in the middle of Europe in in, in Frankfurt. You're sitting in. Uh, in, in Mexico City, and uh, we, we, we are talking uh, from some perspective, there are two subjects talking to each other, mm-hmm. and we have a world crisis uh, that's read a lot of subjects that make other people objects. Of, uh, what are we talking uh, mm-hmm. transcending the subject-object relationship? Uh, what what, right. what so, is this really? So... The, so it's not, this is where we come back to non-dualistic thought, right? It's, uh-huh. if we, if we uh, have a broader constellational worldview and we incorporate uh, things like, uh, uh, and aspects and worldviews like quantum physics and non-locality and uh, various spiritual practices, et cetera, the, the sort of amalgam of those points to the fact that there, there is no separation between us, right? Earth itself is a living system, uh, which is embedded in a larger living system of a solar system, which is embedded in a larger living system of a galaxy, etc. And then down the other way, uh, we as human beings are not uh, abstract individual units. We are embedded in a broader community of life, which is embedded in the broader Gaian whole uh, in, in the planetary system. And then down to a cellular level, there is no us, quote unquote. There is no Thomas. There is no Alnur. There is a, a, a community of life, including billions of cells, bacteria, uh, DNA, RNA, no. uh, epigenetic phenomena, etc. Okay. Right. Okay. So the idea okay. of the subject itself is already the problem, right? Yeah. No, I get it. I get. It. Uh, but how do you practice this? What does it mean to practice this? I mean, I, I, I understand there is a lot of philosophical argument for why the subject-object uh, uh, kind of uh, division is, is only a projection of ourselves. But real, for, for real people, in real conversations, in a real society, how do you practice this? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's many ways to practice it, right? For some people, the avenue into the dissolution of subject-object is through uh, meditation or yoga or qigong or psychedelic use uh, or tantra work. Um, for some people, it's art. Okay. You know, it's the, the, those, the, the, the moments of flow state that uh, you can cultivate in order uh-huh. to dissolve the ego structure of I, those moments where the, the, the self-awareness and self-referentiality of you doesn't exist is a moment of subject-object transcension. Now, I'm not saying that you can live in that state, um, at least in the physical form. You know, I'm sure there's certain people who do, but you could change the ratio of your conscious life mm-hmm. and how often you are in that state and, and the more often we're in that state, the less identified we are with our individual ego, the less identified we are with the broader culture, the, the, the more ability we have to access those uh, uh, alternative states. Uh, and, and what that, you know, this, it's like a flywheel effect, right? You, you sort of 
the first time you roll the flywheel, it's very difficult. It requires a lot of effort. The ego is very calcified. It's very strong, right? And the flywheel moves and then it builds on its own momentum to the point where it's, uh, it, it doesn't require um, the, the same amount of, of uh, initial exertion, right? And, yeah. and, and that is part of the, the practice. It's like by any means necessary, there's no one way to do this and no one can prescribe to you how to get to these non-ordinary, non-dual states. But we know they exist. We know that uh, uh, anybody can access these states, uh, that, that there are uh, traditions whose entire lineage uh, are, are sort of based on, on uh, uh, cultivating these states. And so you know, the beauty also of, of those states is they, you're, you're not, it's not just the small I ego identity structure that is transcended. You, it also removes you from the embedment of the culture that's determining and co-determining your identity, right? So you can see the influence of culture. What is culture? It's a set of collectively held delusions that we all agree to adhere to. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean it's bad. You know, there, clearly there's some cultures that are better than other cultures, but the, the you know, the globalized dominant McDonald's uh, culture of the West uh, clearly has, you know, uh, very little to redeem in itself, right? In and of itself and, and how it operates, the, the sort of growth-based industrial paradigm. And so getting into these states and being able to see how, mm-hmm. how, how that dominant culture is affecting you and affecting you uh, literally in terms of your, your physical body and, and the real estate we give in our physical body and our mental body, our cognitive, spiritual, psychological space to these belief systems is very powerful. It's a very powerful practice. And do this you is see, where we, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Do you see uh, uh, some uh, cultures, communities where this flywheel starts to get momentum and how does this momentum look like? How, how does this create a different way of being together? Yeah. Um, if we look at indigenous communities, right, their flywheel is 10,000 years old in certain cases, 5,000 years old, 3,000 years old. So it, it's, a, it's a more um, mature, integrated, symbiotic relationship uh, with the natural world. It's embedded in place. That's what it means uh, to be indigenous, right? And so when we look at uh, communities like uh, the Kogi community in Colombia, for example, right? Uh, and, and I recommend watching the documentary Aluna, um, for example. I think it's on Netflix. It's a, it's a BBC documentary. But it, it, you, you get a sense of how uh, people who, and peoples and cultures who are actively directing and orienting themselves towards a, a higher transcendental, um, both transcendental and imminent states, let's say, uh, are, are then embedded in the world in a very different way, right? The, the, these things are, it's, it's not that the, the aim of this practice is, is uh, simply to be in better relationship with yourself. This is not a, a sort of new age self-help uh, strategy. This is the, the reason cultures worthy of the name culture 
engage in these practices is so they can be more deeply embedded in the natural world and be in deeper dialogue with the living planet. And, and those are the civilizations and cultures that survive uh, ice ages and self-terminating logic of capitalism, et cetera, right? And so there's definitely the historical long view lens of cultures that have held these practices. And then there are, you know, modern newer cultures, let's say, uh, who, who are sort of embedded in, in, in these types of practices, right? And we see this in the alternative community movement and, you know, communities like Tamara and Damanhur and, and what have you. There's, there's people who are actively practicing this in their own way. And um, they're also embedded in the world in different ways. And, and so the, the, it's almost like there's three layers uh, at the very least to make it simplistic of, of, um, of subject object transcension happening. One is at the individual level, another is at the community level, the broader societal network and web of people we're tapped into. And then the larger is at a, at a sort of uh, societal cultural level and the interface between the natural world in which we are embedded. And so uh, though all these shifts are happening simultaneously on, 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 on multiple layers. And there, of course, there's, you know, uh, nameless communities and cultures that have been doing this, but this is non-existent in the Western dominant paradigm. Which, which maybe brings us also to the last point that you made and maybe, uh, for many people seem to be the most surprising, the most provocative. One, uh, uh, you said uh, we have to practice animism, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, for, for modernist mindsets, basically, are you nuts? We have to go back basically where we came from. Uh, animism is known as kind of primitive, Let's put it that way. And here you come and say, if we really want to be uh, in that context, uh, global peace workers, but also I would say global workers for transformation, we have to practice animism in the 21st century. Uh, what do you mean? So, yeah, we, we have a, a kind of tainted understanding of animism, right? That uh, cognitively links it in some way to primitivism or... Uh, Stone Age, Paleolithic uh, lifestyle. And uh -huh. uh, at the simplest level, what animism means is that uh, everything is alive, right? Everything is animated by life itself. And um, there, there is a, a, a more modern syncretic way to see this, which is if we, the, the Gaian whole, the earth itself is a living system, everything within that living system is also alive. How could it be otherwise? I, in some ways, I don't even know what the opposite of animism would be, right? Well, we, right, because what, 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 what isn't alive within a living being, right? And, and also the Gaian whole is embedded in a, a living cosmos. And so, as we said earlier, right, fractal all the way down to the bottom, fractal all the way up uh, as above, so below, we, we are encased in life. And so animism in some ways is the antidote to rationalism and materialism. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that there isn't a usefulness to rationalism in certain contexts. Of course there is, or materialism in certain contexts. And this is non-dual thought. So it says, yes, there's a material world that exists. And there's also an animistic field of quantum energy that is uh, we are in interaction with and we are in relationship with. And so it's not just simply a worldview shift. It's not like we can just uh, read a book or turn a switch and all of a sudden we will go from these mechanistic Cartesian atomized separate units of beingness to an embedded uh, animistic dialogic species. That's not going to happen, but it is a practice. And when, and, and this is why I also believe, you know, psychedelics and uh, other spiritual practices, you know, held within certain uh, containers and cultural context, you know, um, play a, a critical role and have historically always played a critical role in the evolution of human consciousness. We have symbiotically evolved with these plant teachers and, and, and plant allies uh, like peyote and ayahuasca and San Pedro and uh, Syrian rue and mandrake root and blue lotus and you know the list goes on there it hasn't been a sophisticated civilization that has not had a symbiotic relationship with with uh, at least one of these these plant teachers and so uh, what those plants are doing is that they're actively strengthening the relational field uh, between the 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 living planet and human consciousness. And so th- there's a, a sort of way of being in the world that sort of reorients us to go from the, the sort of hubris culture we have to a culture of humility, from the, the kind of taking culture that we have, the entitlement culture where we believe eh, we have the right to uh, anything we see or need or require as human beings to a culture that's more permission-based, uh, more dialogue-based, uh, more reverence-based, and uh, a culture of knowing where we believe, you know, that science and rationalism have sort of uh, created this apex species to one that is in wonder, that is in uh, uh, sort of hu- uh, humility, and to understand that science is uh, the floor of human understanding. It's not the ceiling of human understanding. And it's one way to perceive the world. And there's multiple simultaneous ontologies and realities happening at the same time. And if we can tap into those through uh, dialogue, through humility, uh, through permission, uh, through wonder, through uh, uh, enlivenment, uh, then perhaps the human species can garner information from those realms that will, and the natural world will also help us and be in service to us because the more we listen to the natural world, the more we trust the natural world, the more it can trust us. Alder, we also come to the end of our time here. uh, um, Just wanted uh, to ask you also personally, uh, this vision that you laid out uh, in this way, um, how are you living this, and 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 how do you see this manifest around you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I believe uh, in both uh, resistance and renewal. You know uh-huh. that we have to fight the existing system uh, and remove the noose of capitalism around 
the neck of you know 99% of humanity and, and all of life. And simultaneously, we have to be in the renewal. We have to create new lived embodied uh, experiences. And I'm also a big believer in context that human beings are neither inherently bad nor good. We're highly contextual beings. And so the systems and the structures in which we live in which we embed ourselves are our context. And so, um, you know, I, I live in an alternative community where uh, we don't own the land. We put that land into a trust. We, we govern our land through direct democracy. We farm organically and regeneratively and, um, we, we run all economic activity uh, through a co-op um, and we use the funds of that co-op to also fund our mutual aid network in the region um, to create strong bioregional network of, of uh, food self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency and, and uh, political self-determination. And I don't think we have any answers. It's just uh, a practice right? It's an experiment that we, we're, we're trying to live. Um, and, you know, in some ways, some people think, say to me, well, it's so difficult to do that and to live in community and to like be farming your own food and to be spending all this time in these deliberative democracy processes, etc. And, and I actually think the opposite. I think it's, it's so difficult to keep this existing system intact. The sheer amount of labor that's required, the destruction of the natural world, right? Like, people working in mines, living in uh, atomized uh, lifestyles, uh, uh, paying mortgages, doing work that they don't want to do, uh, the, the sort of burden of that emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, cognitively, it's so immense that the alternative to me is much more freeing. And of course, it, it's, it's difficult and it requires its own work, but not more so than the difficulty of propping up a dying system. I'll know, uh... If people want to get in contact with your work on, on the web, on the web, where should they go? Um, you, you can see some of the, the case studies of the work we did through the rules uh, at the rules.org. And um, some of our uh, more recent political work is happening through Culture Hack Labs, which is culturehack.io. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm not really, uh, yeah, the type of person who, who sort of like wants people right. to necessarily like go to my sites or read my books or any, any of that stuff. It's more, um, if it resonates with you to take that knowledge and make it contextually useful for, for yourself, right? It's not that I, I want people to come to our community. I, I want people to create their own versions that are, are, are true to them. And, you know, in the, this practice of transcending the subject object is also to understand that there's no me telling you this, right? It's you are reminding yourself of knowledge you already know through a dialogue between quote unquote Thomas and quote unquote Alnur, right? And so if these practices and these ideas are useful to you, they don't belong to me anyway. So, you know, take them as you will and uh, hopefully apply them to your practice of being a good student of your culture and disidentifying from the dominant system and doing your subject object work and, and your, your praxis around the uh, contributing to the animistic field. Anu, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for having me.